So we're back in Mark's Gospel um, this morning. But before I ask Gordon to come forward and read the, the text for this morning, which is Mark uh, chapter 11, verses 11 to 25. Mark 11, verses 11 to 25. Before I ask Gordon to come forward and read it, I do just want to introduce the text that we'll be looking at. Um, last Friday, I met with uh, one of the interns here, and one of them used the phrase, Jethro will remember this, there he is, uh, one of them used the phrase Markian sandwich. And um, of course I thought of Subway. Um, but he wasn't talking about Subway. Apologies if you haven't had breakfast, by the way, and you're hungry, and I'm using phrases like Markian sandwich. But um, he was talking about how Mark arranges things in his gospel. And um, you see an example of a Markian sandwich in our text for this morning. Um, Jesus curses the fig tree. That's the bottom layer. That's the bottom bit of bread. Jesus cleanses the temple. That's the middle layer. That's the, the meat in the sandwich. And then we're back to the fig tree. And that flows into these words about the mountain. That's, that's the bit of bread at the top of the sandwich. It's a perfect sandwich, isn't it? Bread, meat, bread. It's a perfect sandwich. It's a Markian sandwich. And like any sandwich, it's not an accident. No one trips over and goes, oh, wow, turkey club. That's not what happens. It's deliberate. You make sandwiches deliberately, and Mark has made these sandwiches, as it were, deliberately. And he's doing it to make a point. And the question this morning is, of course, what's the point? What's the point of this sandwich that Mark has made in this text? And that'll be our focus this morning. So if I could ask Gordon to come forward and read the text, which is Mark 11, verses 11 to 25. Thank you, Gordon. Mark 11, 11 to 25. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chiefs and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when it was evening, they came and went out to the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, ever, say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, 
and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. God's blessing be upon his word. Thank you, Gordon. Well, before we turn to the Lord in the text, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning. We thank you that you are with us this morning in the person of your Son through his work. And we pray that we would be conscious of your presence. We pray that we would gaze upon your beauty as you show us your beauty in your word. We pray that you would make us humble before you and grow us in our humility before you this morning. We pray that you would grow us in our fruitfulness, that you would keep us now from the evil one and that you would um, grant that all that we do would glorify you. Be with us now, for we need you. Grant that everything we do would be an expression of love for you and from you. Thank you that we need not fear, for you are our light and our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so this morning I just want to look at the three parts of the Markian sandwich and just ask three questions each time of each part of this sandwich. And the questions are these. What does Jesus see? That's the first question. What does Jesus want? That's the second question. And what does Jesus do? That's the third question. I want to ask those three questions of each part of the sandwich. So with the fig tree, the bottom layer, what does Jesus see? What does Jesus want? What does Jesus do? Then with the temple, what does Jesus see? What does Jesus want? What does Jesus do? And then with the top layer, again, these words about the fig tree and the mountain, the same three questions. What does Jesus see? What does Jesus want? What does Jesus do? So that's what we'll be looking at. This morning, firstly, the bottom layer of the sandwich, the fig tree, reading from verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So it's Monday morning. According to verse 11, the night before, Sunday night, Jesus had visited the temple, but it was late when he did that. So the picture painted in verse 11 of Jesus visiting the temple is, 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 is one in which you get the sense that, that when Jesus goes into the temple, everyone else has gone home. And you just have these, these stalls set up all over the place, but, but no one's manning them. And, and so he goes into the temple, looks around at everything in the temple, and then he leaves with his disciples Sunday night, and he goes back to Bethany, presumably to stay with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Remember that they're friends of Jesus and they live in Bethany. And somehow, we don't know how, maybe they had a mansion. Mary and Martha and Lazarus managed to find beds for all 13 of them, Jesus and his 12 disciples. So they, maybe they were on couches, who knows? Maybe they had, you know, air beds, air mattresses, and who knows how they fit, but they fit. And then 
It's Monday morning. They wake up. And Jesus is now walking back to Jerusalem with his disciples. And what happens? Well, while he's walking to Jerusalem, he gets hungry. There was that pain of hunger. There was that pain of, of, of having an empty stomach. And we don't know why. Perhaps Mary and Martha and Lazarus had beds enough for 13, but not food enough for 13. In any case, this is what happens. He gets hungry, has that pain in his stomach, that, that feeling of weakness, perhaps. And what happens is this. This is what he sees. Remember, this is our first question. What does Jesus see? This is what he sees. He sees in the distance a fig tree. But it's not just any fig tree. It's a fig tree that is, Mark tells us, in leaf. It has leaves. Which means what? It means it should have fruit. Might not be the season for figs. Jesus knew that. Mark knows that. But that doesn't matter. If a fig tree has leaves, it should have fruit fruit. And that's what Jesus wants here. That's our second question, remember? What does Jesus want? Jesus wants fruit. So Jesus walks over to the fig tree. Now just think about how hungry he must be to do this. Feeling that pain of hunger, feeling that emptiness in his stomach. Think of how great that pain and that emptiness must be for Jesus to see a fig tree and walk over to it wanting fruit from that fig tree. Think about it. No one ever says, I'm so hungry, I could eat a fig. <laughs> no one does that. But that's how hungry Jesus is. Jesus is so hungry, even a fig will help his hunger. And so he walks over to the tree, and he works his way around it. If you've ever picked fruit, you know what is going on here. He walks his way around it. First branch he looks at, he sees leaves all the way down. Next branch he looks at, he sees leaves all the way down, no fruit. Next branch he looks at, he sees leaves all the way down, no fruit. He works his way around the tree, top and bottom, left and right. Same thing. The whole thing is leaves and no fruit. None whatsoever. To borrow a phrase, what this fig tree is guilty of is false advertising. That's what's happening here. Think about it. The leaves say what? Fruit. Life. They say, come to me. I will feed you. I will satisfy you. Come to me and you'll be helped. Come to me and you'll be nourished. Come to me and you'll be renewed. Come to me and you'll be refreshed because I will give you fruit. Look at my leaves. I'm going to give you fruit. But in reality, it's false advertising. It's all lies, a complete lie, fabrication, because there was no fruit. Third question, what does Jesus do? What did he see? He saw leaves. What did he want? He saw, what did he want? He saw, he wanted fruit. What does he do? Third question. It's very interesting what he does. Maybe I can bring it out this way. 
If you were as hungry as Jesus is here, hungry enough that a fig will satisfy your hunger, that hungry that even a fig is something that you desire, hungry enough to eat a fig. So if you were that hungry, and if you had the power that Jesus has here, the power of God himself, how would you use that power? Put those two things together. If you were that hungry and you had Jesus' power, how would you use that power? Would you use that power, A, to deal with the fig tree, or B, to deal with your hunger? How would you use that power? The answer is B. You would use it to deal with your hunger. If you were hungry and you had Jesus' power, you'd say, boom, two-piece quarterback. That's what you do. You'd use your power to deal with your hunger. Jesus doesn't use his power to deal with his hunger. He uses his power to do what? To deal with the fig tree. Verse 14. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now this isn't Jesus flying off the handle. This is deliberate. This is deliberate. This is very deliberate on the Lord's part. Notice that Mark says his disciples heard it. In other words, this isn't Jesus saying underneath his breath, stupid fig tree. That's not what's happening here. He wants his disciples to hear this. And he wants them to to hear it because he's making a point about the temple. Which leads to the second part of the sandwich, the temple. Reading verses 15 to 18. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So remember our three questions. What does Jesus see? What does Jesus want? What does Jesus do? Firstly, in terms of the second part of the sandwich, the temple, what does Jesus see? Answer. Jesus sees a hive of activity. He sees a hive of activity. Think of what you would get if you crossed a farmer's market with the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange and put it in a religious context. Right? So you've got a farmer's market with all the messiness and, and the animals and the, the muck and stuff like that. You have the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You might have seen those old videos, people shouting and waving bits of paper and on phones and, and all of that busyness and, and have it going on and put those two things together and then put it in a religious context. And that's something of what Jesus sees here. He sees people buying and selling pigeons. He sees people exchanging currency. He sees people carrying things through the temple. It's a hive of activity. And it is, as I say, a hive of activity in a religious context. It's a hive 
of religious activity. Remember, it's Passover. You've got people coming from all over the world, all over the place, to offer their sacrifices in the temple. And that's what the pigeon sellers and money exchangers are there to facilitate. This isn't a secular thing as it were going on. This is a religious thing. They're serving the purposes of the temple in some sense. Think about it. You're a pilgrim coming to the temple for Passover. It's far safer and more convenient to just buy the pigeon once you're there rather than travel all the way with the pigeon. might die on the way. It might be rejected once you get to the temple. It's far more convenient and easier to just buy the pigeon once you get to the temple. Same with the money traders, the money exchanges. Again, if you're coming in for Passover from a place far off with some different currency, drachma or lira or yen or whatever it is, you need someone to exchange money. So that's what they're doing. And most people would look at all of that. People flooding in from all over the place, buying pigeons, selling pigeons, exchanging money, all in service of the temple, and think, wow, this temple is alive. It's a hive of religious activity. What does Jesus see? He doesn't see life. He sees death. He sees, in his words, a den of robbers. In modern terms, he sees the shady corner of some dodgy restaurant in New York. Men in suits, gold watches, big pile of cash on the table counting it out. A den of robbers. That's the modern picture here. Jesus doesn't see something wonderful. He doesn't see life. He sees something horrible. He sees death. So that's what he sees, first question. Secondly, what does he want? What does he want to see? Well, again, he tells us. He quotes from Isaiah 56. Listen to Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house should be called a house of prayer. For all peoples. That's what he wants to see. A house of prayer for all peoples. People being made happy in that house. But that's not what he says. So what does he do? Third question. What does Jesus do? The answer is something remarkable. Jesus gets physical. And this is a remarkable passage. He might have been weak from hunger, but his anger, his wrath at what he swore in the temple was so great, he literally, he actually did this. He actually started flipping tables and chairs. Have you ever seen someone get so angry they flipped a table? If you see someone do that with a Scrabble board, you never forget it. You think, wow, they are angry. This isn't a Scrabble board. He's flipping tables. 
He flips the table of the money changers. Jars break, coins go clanging everywhere. He flips the chairs of those selling pigeons and they make a big loud racket and he tells them all to get out. Now just think with me how you would feel. Put yourself in the shoes of the the pigeon sellers and the, the money changers. What would you say to Jesus at this point? Seeing him do that with the table that you'd set up, with the chairs that you'd set up. What would you say to him? He'd probably say, Jesus, this is my job. This is how I put food on the table for my kids. This is how I provide a livelihood for my family. Or perhaps sharper, what would you say to Jesus, not if you were a seller, but if you were a buyer? Notice. He kicks them out as well. They're as much a part of the problem as the sellers are. What would you say to Jesus if you were a buyer, if you were trying to buy a pigeon to use in sacrifice? You'd say, I need that. I need it for my sacrifice. And you're not letting me do that. So if you were a buyer and a seller, you'd be like, what are you doing? This is totally legitimate. Who are you to do this? This is religious. But none of that washes with Jesus. The buyers and the sellers might have looked at what they were doing and thought, this is legitimate. People looking at the temple might have thought, this is alive. Jesus looks at it and he says, it's a den of robbers. And you're at fault, he says. The sellers, the buyers, the religious leaders who allowed this whole thing to take place, you're all at fault. So it's just like the fig tree, isn't it? Like the fig tree. Jesus sees what looks like life, leaves. Like the fig tree. Jesus wants fruit. He wants a house of bread. Instead, there is no fruit. Instead, there's a den of robbers. And so, like the fig tree, Jesus cleanses the temple. Because remember what happened to the temple. It's just like the fig tree. No one ever ate fruit from this temple again. Because this temple... This house of Blair was literally destroyed within 40 years. Which leads to our third heading. Remember the sandwich. Jesus returns to talking about the fig tree, and that leads to these words about the mountain. Look with me at verses 19 to 25. And when evening came, they went out of the city, and as they passed, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, The fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I'm guessing many of your Bibles probably have the heading here, the lesson of the fig tree. Now the hard thing about this text is that what follows under that heading, which many of your Bibles probably have, the lesson of the fig tree, is not necessarily what you would expect based on Mark's arrangement. Maybe I can put it this way. Mark clearly 
wants to connect the fig tree to the temple. That couldn't be any clearer. He sandwiches what happens in the temple between what happens to the fig tree. So if you were going to give this name, the sandwich a name, you would call it a, a temple sandwich to carry that imagery over. That's his arrangement. Now, in light of that arrangement, really deliberately connecting the fig tree to the temple, what would you expect to follow underneath the title, The Lesson of the Fig Tree? Given how deliberately Mark wants to connect the fig tree and the temple, what you would expect is something about the temple. You'd expect Jesus to say, well, what happened with the fig tree is going to happen with the temple. You'd expect Jesus to explicitly talk about the temple in the words that follow underneath the title, The Lesson of the fig tree, but Jesus, he doesn't seem to mention the temple at all underneath the heading, the lesson of the fig tree, as it is in some Bibles. Instead, what he does is this he talks about a mountain and he talks about prayer, he talks about asking in prayer, and he talks about forgiving others in connection. To prayer. And so you ask, what does that have to do with the temple and the fig tree? How is that the lesson of the fig tree? These words, not about the temple, but about a mountain and about prayer. How do the mountain and prayer connect to what happened to the fig tree and how that connects to the temple? The answer is everything. Think about it. You've asked this question. What does Jesus mean by this mountain in verse 23? People tend to interpret it in kind of generic terms, right? Any mountain. You can say to Mount Everest, you could say to Mount Cook, lift it up, throw it into the sea, and it's going to happen. You can literally move mountains. Or maybe they interpret it sort of generally, but, but figuratively. You can move any mountain, any obstacle in your Life and and I'm not saying those things are, are wrong, at all. Um, at least in some sense, but some people, and I tend to agree with this position, believe that that very particular phrase, this mountain, believe that that actually refers to the temple. In fact, you might have picked up on this earlier. Isaiah 56, the verse that Jesus quotes. What does it refer to? What does it talk about? It talks about my holy mountain. Right next to the the phrase house of prayer, it talks about my holy mountain. In other words, Jesus, I think this is this is solid, this is good. Good way of understanding this this verse. Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple. That's what this mountain refers to. So that's how it connects back to the temple. He's referring to the destruction of the temple. But then what about the words that follow? So that's the the phrase of this mountain. What about the words that follow? What about these words about asking in prayer and believing that you have received it and it will be yours and whenever you stand praying, forgive? What's that all about? How does that relate back to the fig tree and the temple? How is that connected? How is that part of the lesson of the fig tree? Well, again, I think the answer is everything. Just think about it. 
If the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer, and if that house of prayer is going to be destroyed, then Jesus has to talk about prayer, doesn't he? He has to fill the void, as it were. Because if the temple is gone, if the house of prayer in Jerusalem with its system of sacrifices is gone, then the question is, well, how should we think about prayer then? If, if the house of prayer was going to go, if that's going to be destroyed, how should we think about prayer? What should we do? What should it look like? And it's wonderful. Jesus fills that void. He tells them. And it's wonderful what he tells them. Jesus says, it should look like you all, it's plural, not singular, y'all, it should look like you all freely asking the Father. You don't have to go through a priest. You can go directly to the Father. It should look like you all freely asking the Father, fully confident of his goodwill towards you because he loves you, approaching him directly, not through a priest, not through a mediator in that sense, just a human mediator, directly. Not only that, not only freely asking the Father, it should also look like you freely forgiving each other. This is ultimately manifest war in the church, isn't it? In the church. And so we have to ask the three questions then, don't we, of the church. What does Jesus see? What does he want? What does he do? Firstly, what does Jesus see when he sees the church today? Often he sees a den of robbers. Often he sees hives of religious activity with no life to be found whatsoever. People buying and selling. Celebrity pastors and podcasters hawking books and products and believers buying them. What does he want to see? Second question. Believers freely asking the Father, knowing his goodness and his keenness to bless, and in light of that, freely forgiving each other. And what does he do? Well, he cleanses, as he does here. You see the rise and fall of mega ministries that had nothing to do with Jesus' kingdom. And he blesses, as he promises here. He freely gives anything to those who ask, and he freely forgives those who forgive. But then there's one more question. And that's, how does he do all of that? How does he freely grant our petitions? How does he forgive as we forgive? In this temple, There needed to be a blood sacrifice. It's not that the pigeons weren't necessary. There needed to be a blood sacrifice. So how does he do this now? How does he freely forgive us? And how does he freely grant the petitions that we ask of him? The answer is what? Jesus himself. Blood is still required. But blood has already been shed. Because the temple, which is supposed to be the meeting place between God and man, is now what? Better said, is now whom? The meeting place between God and man is Jesus and his work on the cross. He's the new temple. 
He's the meeting place between God and man. And because he's died, we can freely ask the Father anything and we can and must freely forgive each other anything as he has forgiven us everything. So may this mark us as a church, freely asking the Father, absolutely confident of his goodwill towards us and freely forgiving each other as we've been forgiven. Will you pray with me as we close? Our gracious Father, we thank you that the meeting place between you and us is Jesus, that he is the mediator of a new covenant, that we meet with you in him and through his work. And May we always come to you in him and through him and his work alone. May we never have confidence in our works, but in his work, his finished work. And so, Father, we ask that this would mark us as a church, full confidence in his work and his work alone, and freely asking you, and freely forgiving each other as we have been forgiven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.